This is the Ambiguous Podcast Solution, the podcast for podcasters. Stories told by everyday people as well as longtime professionals. Join a member of the APS team as they discuss the crazy world of podcasting. The only catch? We only speak to fellow podcasters. We will bring you the origin stories, the greatest hits, learning experiences, and the future goals of podcasts of all shapes and sizes. If you're listening to this, hopefully it will inspire you to start your own podcast, or it will inspire you to keep going and give you ideas on how to make your podcast better. If you have a podcast and want to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us at info at APSpodcast.com for more details. Welcome Welcome to the Ambiguous Podcast Solution. Now let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Ambiguous Podcast Solution. This is another fun one for me. My name is Will Tarashuk, the host, the founder, and the COO of Ambiguous Podcast Solution. But today I am talking to a conservationalist. I hope I said that right. A conservationist. Someone who wants to conserve the wild. Uh, Jason Crichton. He is the founder and CEO of Conserve the Wild, which is a non-for-profit, as well as the host of the Conservation Unfiltered Podcast podcast, which is uh, your award-winning destination for all things conservation. Join the host, Jason Crichton, as he discusses a wide range of topics within the conservation community. Of course, all unfiltered. So, Jason, welcome to the show, man. This is very exciting. I'm very happy to talk to a conservationist, someone who's actually doing something with meaning. Yeah, hey, I appreciate it. And um, don't sell yourself short because... um Whenever you explain my sort of my sort of tag for my podcast, it sounds so much better coming out of your face than it does mine. You know, it always it always sounds better. So it's like sounds like oh, here's Will. He's been podcasting since 2015. I'm like, oh my god, I have. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it sounds a lot better coming from someone else than it does from me. Uh, but we're not here to talk about me. Yeah, you know, we might we might talk about me if you want if you want to talk about me and throw questions at me. I'm an open book. Um, but let's start with you. Who are you? Where you're from? And how did you how did you get involved in your non for profit? So please, just introduce yourself to the people. Yeah, so uh, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. Um, I grew up as a as an outdoors kid. I was um, uh, spent many many weekends uh, on my family's property where we had a cabin. Uh, I think we're just over 50 years now that we've had that in the family and mm. uh, loved being outside, um, just messing around, being, being a little, you know, being a little boy playing in the mud. Um, always fun times there. And uh, eventually, you know, um, got into baseball, playing baseball, which I played through college and the outdoors took a little bit of a backseat, but they're always there. Uh, once I graduated from college with a teaching degree, uh, got a job as a teacher, started coaching high school baseball. Eventually that got pretty tiring and, um, decided I wanted to go back into the outdoors. Uh, so I'm still a teacher, but, um, you know, as you know, I have been a hunter for 20, who 23 years now. So, um, you know, I enjoyed that activity, right? I enjoyed doing that, but there's always something more that I wanted to do. Um, land prices are crazy expensive mm-hmm. and I don't have the income to purchase land like my grandfather did. Um, he bought, you know, those 70 acres for $325 an acre, I think it was. Wow. And uh, yeah, if, I mean, if I could find land at that price, I'd be buying it up. I'd you know, buy it up. Barrel. Screw it. I'll buy an acre. This is just, <laughs> just to have. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, now with prices, you know, at, at minimum around $5,000 an acre, I just don't have the income for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided I wanted to find a way to give back you know, to the outdoor space. And, um, you know, if I can't afford to buy more land, I can improve the land I have. 
And that is what really sort of started the idea of conserve the wild. Um, Instead of, you know, I, in the area I am, we're not, I wouldn't say it's not a city. Like I don't live in a city. Um, I live in what would be considered like suburbia, uh, which is okay for now. But uh, um, you know, I see our, the, the sprawl that, you know, that Americans in the United States are doing. Yeah, we're just expanding our cities bigger and bigger and our suburban areas bigger and bigger. And it, for the most part, has pretty much no regard for wildlife um, or for ecology. And uh, that's where Conserve the Wild stem from was just, hey, you know, what if, what if we can do things a little bit smarter and we can try to be a little more sustainable and try to keep some of these areas for wildlife? And, um, so that's, you know, we have two main goals at, at conserve the wild. One of them is to, to educate the public. I mean, I'm a teacher, so, Hey, let's educate the public about mm-hmm. conservation. Uh, and we're in the process of developing some high school and middle school curriculums about conservation that will be donated free, uh, at, at, to no, at no cost to teachers that are interested in teaching that curriculum. And then really the main big picture idea that we have is uh, trying to raise capital so that when an old farmstead or a wooded area, you know, goes up for sale or might go up for sale, uh, that instead of, you know, some developer buying it, we would buy it. We would manage that property uh, based on the most conservation need, you know, for wildlife there and um, allow, you know, people from the public to, to come and enjoy it just like I get to enjoy the property that my family purchased. Yeah. So cons- conservation is obviously, you know, it's something very important. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't picture you being from Western Pennsylvania. I'm not going to lie. I pictured you being from the upper Northwest, someone like, you know, like, like a, like a, like a, uh, an Oregon or Washington state or even um, whatever, whatever, Montana. I think Montana's next to Oregon, right? Like that kind of, because I think of like, you know, conserving the wild, I think of, you know, the heavy forested areas. Like I didn't realize that, is Western Pennsylvania that heavily forested? I mean, there's deer everywhere, I mean, elk everywhere. But is yeah, Western I mean, Pennsylvania, it's like that, is that, is that really? Like what, what, what needs to be conserved in Western Pennsylvania? Oh man, um, we have, I think it's over a hundred, over 150 species of concern. Um, there's a couple of different types of bats, for example, mm. um, salamanders. Uh, there's all kinds of, it's heavy, mi- heavy coal mining country up here. Um, not as much mining anymore, but right. there was a, yeah, lot of, a lot of strip mining. Right. Yep, yeah. City. So um, we have a lot of fish species that are um, either extirpated or still under threat because of runoff from mines and things like that. Um, you know, it, it's funny, a lot of people, I would say that a lot of people are like you and think, you know, it's mostly people out West that are interested in, in the outdoors um, or interested in, you know, conservation and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, as I've been jumping in more and more with conservation organizations, I find that there are a lot of people into conservation that are originally from, they might not still be in that area, but are originally from Pennsylvania and Michigan. Hmm. And both of those areas are huge hugely wooded area, especially, you know, the UP of Michigan, nothing but big woods. Um, the vast majority of Northern Pennsylvania is still big woods. We have uh, a national forest, um, not actually not far from our family property. The Allegheny National Forest is there. Uh, and actually Pennsylvania itself actually translates to Penn's Woods, uh, the original owner, uh, owner of Pennsylvania. 
um, it was his woods that he had. So yeah, there's still, I mean, the Southern portion of the state, especially around Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, um, you know, it's been transformed greatly over the last 50 years or so, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of, um, outdoor experiences that you can have in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and not to be honest, you know, the Northeast, you know, has like the Appalachians, all those mountains, right? You know, v- Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, all of Upper New England is all that's like where I'm from. I'm from Massachusetts, but like, you know, all of up there, it's all it's all nature, it's all mm-hmm. woodland. Um, so what are what's like one of the hardest parts of running a conservation, like you know, save the forest kind of organization? Do you see the most hurdles from government? Do you see a lot of hurdles from like other organizations like a PETA, or just a lot of hurdles from just regular old people who just don't understand? I, I think it, there's sort of two aspects um, and they sort of stem from really one aspect and that's people. Um, yeah. People just, unless you grew up in a rural setting or you grew up in a family that made going into the outdoors a priority, um, it's not top of mind for you to think about. So, you know, trying to, and, and because of that, that means there's a smaller pool of people that do like, I'm not saying that some people don't, that most people don't care about conservation, but the people that are really passionate about it, um, it's a small pool of people. And there are a ton of different conservation organizations out there um, that are all sort of vying for their dollar, their donations, you know, their volunteerism. Uh, So that really sort of makes it the hardest to be a new nonprofit that's starting out is, is really getting enough support to be, um, to look at as being viable on a political scale or on a, you know, a larger scale than just your sort of backyard. Yeah. And it's honestly the people who really are all gung ho about it and very much invested into it. It's if you ask most people in New York city, it's not going to be people they expect. I bet they're not going to say that many hunters care about like, no, they don't care about the environment. They just want to kill things. Right. But like, no, like, you know, a lot of, like a lot of hunters, like, you know, specifically in Africa, um, you hear stories a lot where, you know, they have, they have to kill, this like rhinoceros because it's terrorizing, you know, the local village or community there and they have to do it. But if they want to go kill it, they have to pay for it. And all the money they pay for it goes to conserving the wild. So people just like, that's just like a thing. I know that I know a lot of people just don't know how correct am I on that? Uh, I mean, you're correct. It, it makes absolutely zero sense, right? Uh, in order to save animals, you have to, you have to kill, kill them, kill yeah. some of the, some of them, right? Um, and that's where a lot of people get hung up. You know, th- they look at the the act of hunting as this terrible, terrible thing. When you look at this one individual animal, right? Um, yeah, and as a hunter, I get no, I actually get zero joy in the act of pulling the trigger or releasing an arrow. Like that's while I'm accomplishing the goal, I'm not ecstatic about that. Right. Um, but it's, I look at it sort of pragmatically in that, yes, this one animal had to die, but the, you know, hundreds or thousands or millions in the case of white-tailed deer, they're going to benefit because that's then more food for them. Um, and then, you know, using that one animal every way that I possibly can to, you know, sort of make its death a little more worthwhile, um, you know, by consuming the meat, you know, things like that. It, it makes it a little more palatable in your mind, um, you know, as you go through it. But yeah, there's, there's definitely a little bit of a, when you pull the trigger, there's definitely remorse is the wrong word. I won't say I feel remorse, but 
the the weight of the decision that you just made, you know, yeah. it hits you. And then, okay, now there's work to do. I got to make sure, you know, I do what I need to do to find the animal and, and use as much of it as I possibly can. I mean, it's got to be a thrill, though. I mean, come on, like, after you hit it and, like, you know, you take that and you'll be like, oh, yeah, right, nail. Like, you know, there's got to be some sort of, like, you know, hitting a hole-in-one. Even in mini-golf, I get excited for a hole-in-one in mini-golf. Like, like, I've never been hunting, but I can imagine there's some kind of thrill of, you know, you're out there for sometimes days at a time, and you know you're a hunter. I'm sure that sometimes you come back empty-handed. So when you actually just get it, you got to feel something. Yeah, I mean, there's there's excitement. I don't. Again, it's it's more about the fact that you accomplished a goal. Yeah. Not not the fact like it's excitement. Like I'm a big archery hunter, so uh-huh. you know when I release an arrow and it hits the mark where I want it to, I'm excited regardless of whether if it's an inanimate object like a target or if it's you know a white-tailed deer. Um, yeah, I'm excited that I made a good shot. And I'm excited because I know if I made a good shot, that's going to be less suffering for that animal. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon, you know, especially if it if it would fall and die where I can see it, um, you, you feel bad. You, you know, there's a little bit of like, ah, oh, okay, like I just did that. Um, that was because of me. Now, you know, with I think for me, um, it's easier for me to wrap my head around that decision because I I teach culinary classes to high school students. Mm. Um, And, you know, as a society, we have never, as a species, as, as the human population, we have never been more removed from where our food comes from as we are today. Right. Uh, And there's the only way you could get any closer to um, taking part in every process of obtaining food uh, then hunting would be to garden and own and be vegan. Um, you know, so, you know, I look at it as if I'm going to eat meat, I want to procure that meat myself. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want that sanitary approach of just walk into the grocery store and grab this meat that's in a, you know, in plastic wrap. Um, I want to know where it came from. I want to know how it was handled the entire way through. Yeah. I mean, like when I tell people, I like one day I want to go hunting, I even like, you know, my mom, she's like, how? What? Why? Like, you know, it's like it, you, get, you get a lot of that, but it's like, no, like for me, it's not because, oh, well, yeah, I want to do it because, you know, I want I want to experience what it's like to literally catch and eat your own food and also kind of just go back to what's literally ingrained in all of our DNA from thousands of years of evolution. I, I want to tap into that. And it sounds really hard and really challenging. Will I ever go hunting? I don't know. Probably not. But it's something I say I want to do in one day. I hope I hope I get the chance to do it. So what is the main reason why you hunt and how often do you hunt? Oh man. Um <laughs> that that's a loaded question. That's a question um that took me I think 45 minutes in a podcast to articulate. Um every why do I hunt? Everything from from food, right? Um I yeah. eat everything that I that I shoot. Um whether that's pheasants or turkey or um white-tailed deer. Um if it's not for food, there's, you know, some camaraderie, camaraderie there yeah. uh, for, with friends and family. Um, you know, I grew up in a hunting family. My grandfather hunted, my father hunted, uh, my great-grandfather hunted. So there's some tradition to it. Um, there's also just the knowledge that I'm helping conservation. Like I look at the North American model of conservation and right in there, it says, you know, that hunting is a tool 
to accomplish conservation goals. Mm -hmm. So I understand that I am utilizing that tool to help the state, in this case, Pennsylvania, manage the deer population or turkey population, whichever species I'm hunting there. Um, <laughs> I do it also to, to connect, I, I think, to, to sort of recharge and reconnect, um, connect to nature. I mean, you're, we're connected 24 seven to our phones. Um, yep. you know, I'm, I get work emails at two o'clock in the morning, yep. uh, you know, that wake me up. I don't respond to them, but I get them. Um, you know, it, it's a way that I can, it's an activity that is, it's acceptable for me to put my phone in my pack, not look at it and just experience what nature is. Um, could I do that with, you know, photography instead? Yeah, I could. Um, but it doesn't have the same social ramifications that I'm, that I'm used to. So, um, hunting is sort of the way to do it. How much do I hunt? Um, if you would have asked me this question last year, uh, I would have said a lot. Yeah, um, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Uh, well, and that, and that actually wasn't pandemic related. Um, okay. it's, it's so ingrained in my family that, uh, you know, and I enjoy it so much. And with my schedule, um, I was hunting, you know, two or three afternoons a week. And then on sat every Saturday that once hunting season came in. So I think, um, you know, over the last five years, I'd say I'd average probably around, um, 20 to 30 days a year of actively hunting, which for most people is, is a lot. Um, my wife and I just had a baby, uh, over the summer. So oh, this year, yeah, thanks. Uh, which is great. I'm, we're both super excited. Uh, however, from a hunting aspect, uh, it's, it's gone down a little bit, right? So, um, by this point in the year, I probably would have been out maybe seven or eight days. Uh, I've been hunting three and a half days. So it's already cut it in half and I expect it to cut even more into that, which is for a good reason. So, um, yeah, I hunt probably more than most of the average hunters, but, um, unfortunately this year it's a little bit less. So, uh, how, how often do you, um, how, how, how early, like in your, in your child's age, you're going to have it, you know, eating like the meat that you, that you, that you hunt and that you cook. Uh, I'm not an advocate of, uh, giving someone a piece of, of venison, for example, and not telling them it's venison until right. afterwards. Um, I don't, I don't look at that as positive impacts. Um, I will gladly cook up venison for anyone who seems interested. I do that for some coworkers, um, just to try to show them. Uh, honestly, it, it's what, um, uh, one of the big names in hunting in the hunting industry is Stephen Ranella. It's something he's dubbed as venison diplomacy, right? Get people to be okay with, even if they don't want to hunt, get them to be okay with hunting by showing them how good the food can be. Yeah. Uh, so I'll do a lot of that uh, for my son. I don't know. I mean, he can start eating solid foods around six months. So um, I'd say probably around, you know, one or so, um, you know, and really it's going to be, one, maybe two. I don't know. It's going to be one night I'm going to be cooking it and he's going to act like he wants some. And if he wants to try, if he's indicating to me that he wants to try it, I'm going to let him try it. Yeah, give him a nibble. Oh. I, I can, I, I can yeah. only imagine like, um, like your typical diet. It's probably much healthier than most people's, you know, cause most, of food, <laughs> most of your, I, mean, I, I, I mean that, you know, even like, if, even if you eat a lot of red meat, like, right, like red meat's 
healthy for you. You know, too much of it might point out a good thing. I wouldn't recommend the uh, the carnivore diet, but you know, that like a hunter's lifestyle, they're probably very conscious of their diet, or you just like most Americans. <laughs> it was like, you know what, down to the store, <laughs> getting getting some steaks and burgers and you know, extra, extra cheese. Yeah, I mean, listen, all that junk food stuff, right? Like, I, I mean, I I don't eat fast food. Um, okay. And that comes, that comes from my sort of culinary nutritional background, um, you know, uh, and that started back when I, back when I was in college and realized like how bad it was for you. I was an athlete. I was trying to be clean with my diet. Um, that has, my diet has definitely gotten worse as I've aged. Uh, I'm more about convenience now. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I would say, I would say probably, you know, I mean, my family, we have, um, we have some big gardens at our home. So we do a lot of canning. We have a lot of vegetables when they're in season. Um, you know, I try to use venison as much as I can in place of, of beef. I try to use pheasant as much as I can in place of, of chicken. Uh, same thing with wild turkey. Um, yeah, I would say it's probably healthier than the average. No, it is definitely healthier than the average American. Um, but I'm not going to sit here on a high horse and be like, Oh, I'd have the healthiest diet ever just because I hunt. Um, there's, there's still a little too much convenience in there for me. And that's fair. Hey, Doritos still exist out there in Western Pennsylvania. Um, but let's talk about someone like a, like a, like a Teddy Roosevelt, right? Now he was known as like the nature president, right? Like I, I believe he made uh, national parks a thing. I could be wrong on that, but you know, like stuff, stuff and laws he passed and stuff that he stood for. Do those still stand today? Like how important is something that Teddy Roosevelt did way back when still relevant to today? Oh man, uh, Teddy is my hero. Um, if he would run, if, if he was still alive and running for president, I would vote for him every single year um, that there's a presidential election. He, he was the typical president that everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people hated because he used executive action right. uh, more than anyone, any one of his predecessors and arguably more than most modern presidents. Um, yes, he created the first national refuge for birds, for wildlife. He created the first uh, national parks. He created the forest, ser- uh, forest service. Um, yeah, he was sort of, he was the conservation president. And, you know, we still have national parks. We have even more national parks. Um, we have m- even more national wildlife refugees. Um, we have national forests with the forest service still going strong. Um, a lot of what he put in place, we have taken as sort of the foundation of what we're trying to build upon today. Right. Is now as part of what you do at the non-for-profit is, is part of it to get legislation passed for the wild, like wildlife, like, so like how exactly do you conserve the wild. I mean, obviously the stuff you can do, like, you know, cleaning up trash and stuff like that, you know, saving animals, hunting is one of them we've already talked about, but is there even stuff further you can go in terms of legislation? Yeah, uh, there could be. Um, we're not set up for that. We're not set up for policy action. Um, yeah. What we do advocate for, um, we do advocate for certain legislation that might be out there that would be beneficial to the conservation, um, you know, we'll let people know like, Hey, this is something good. Um, recovering America's wildlife act is, is one that's being considered now. And we on our podcast have, you know, encourage people to contact their politicians and let them know that they want them to vote. Yes. For that. Um, the national grasslands act is one that, uh, is looking for co-sponsors. Now I think there's 125 in the house. Um, 
at last I checked, and we've encouraged our listeners to contact the representatives and let them know that they their representative should co-sign that bill. Because uh, obviously, the more co-signers you have, the faster it's going to move through legislation. Um, when it came to the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, that, w- that was a couple years ago, we advocated for that as well. But, um, you know, as our status, we can't advocate for a specific political person. Um, we're IRS bars us from doing that. Yeah. Um, so we, we can't do that. Um, and then we just, we don't have the manpower. We're too small. We're not well-funded enough to um, really go after policy. Uh, we leave that up to some of the bigger organizations and they, they do a pretty good job of advocating for the average conservationist. All right. So you have other basic principles that I found over at your website. Uh, you said wildlife is held in the public trust. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so those principles that you're seeing on our website, we base our mission off of those principles. Those mm-hmm. principles are actually the principles of the North American model of conservation. Okay. So um, that was that was something that was developed. The North American model of conservation was developed by a man uh, by the name of Aldo Leopold. He was from Wisconsin. He's the if he's basically the father of um, wildlife biology. So if you ever talk to someone that has any sort of wildlife biology degree. Aldo Leopold was the person who actually started that program at the University of Wisconsin. That was the first one ever. Um, so, yeah, so we base our mission off of those principles. Um, with with wildlife in, held in the public trust, basically what that saying is um, we will not look at wildlife the way that Europeans look at wildlife. Hmm. Uh, in, in Europe, if the animal is on your property, you own that animal. Uh, and it's not that's not the case in the United States. So in the United States, the wildlife is held is owned by each individual state and the states are supposed to work together a little bit right because animals they don't know they, they've never looked at a map right yeah, they, like, they, don't, don't re- show... they don't recognize state lines because again i'm, I'm gonna yeah. go to pacific northwest like you know if you have a certain herd of animals up north in california that also border on oregon and they go back and forth yeah the states have to work together like no duh <laughs> as long as it's not on yeah. fire right and you know so you know, they, they don't know that, Hey, I can't cross this line or I can't cross this road or whatever. Like they go wherever they want. Um, so it's, it's States that, that own them, it's owned them. Um, and it's States that set the regulations for hunting and for how to care for those animals, whether you can hunt them or not. Um, and then whatever state you're in, then you have to abide by those rules. Right. All right. Then we have a prohibition of commerce of dead wildlife. I'm assuming that's trophy hunting. No, actually it's not. Um, trophy hunting is, is fine, right? Um, there are, there are a lot of hunters, uh, in America that, that trophy hunt. Um, when we think of trophy hunting, we think about like Africa paying, you think of Cecil the lion. Yeah. Right. That that, that, guy, that dentist got his career run through the mud. Okay. What's your thoughts on that whole story of Cecil the lion? Because I have my thoughts. I want to hear yours first. I'm interested. All right. So, um, I am in support of each and every single legal hunter in the world. If you are hunting legally, I will support you until the bitter end. As uh, if you are the, the guy that um, shoots something that they are not supposed to, um, then you are no longer a hunter. You're a poacher. Oh, and yeah. I am 100% against one, all poachers and will actively call out um, social media, in person, whatever. I don't care who you are. If you're a poacher, I'm calling you out on it. And you... I am not that person. That person does not represent me at all. Um, 
I get that that guy paid, you know, upwards of $30,000 to go to Africa and shoot a lion. While that's not for me, I'm not going to do that. One, I don't have the funds to do that. And two, I don't have an interest in going to Africa to, to hunt any of those animals. I support trophy hunting in Africa because it does a lot of good for conservation and does mm-hmm. a lot of good for the villagers that live over there as well. Um, the problem with Cecil the Lion was that Cecil the Lion was living on a wildlife refuge that was closed to hunting. He had a GPS collar on and this guy and his tracker, um, you know, his guide, they call them trackers over there. Um, they knew they weren't supposed to be over there. They knew that they weren't supposed to shoot that lion yet. He did it anyways, because he was coming to the end of his end of his hunt. Um, that turned him into a poacher. Um, you know, some people at the time wanted to argue that he didn't, that the hunter, the hunter, the poacher didn't know what he was doing um, because he doesn't live in Africa. How would he know? Uh, I, I have, an, I, I have an issue with that because I went to Montana and hunted elk. I went to North Dakota and hunted pheasants. I knew where I was allowed to go. I knew where I wasn't allowed to go right. in Montana. I had a guide, the guide guided me, but overall it's still my decision on whether I pull the trigger or not. Um, you know, the guide can't force me to, so there has to be some ownership on that person as well, even if you're just the guide or, or even if you're following a guide. So, yeah, whatever, you know, whatever, uh, barring bodily harm, whatever happens to that guy, I'm okay with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fair. I mean, I, I, trophy hunting, I, I obviously, I prefer, I, obviously, I prefer traditional hunting, right? Hunting, hunting, to, hunting the feed, hunting to, like, like the hunting you do. I'm not necessarily opposed to trophy hunting as this, as long as the answer to the question is, where's that money going? What's that money for? Like if it's going to pay a hundred grand to kill something because you want to kill it and just not do anything with it. It's like, yeah, okay. Like there needs to be a reason. Like for me personally, you know, you know, legally it might be fine and that's fine. I'm okay with that. But like for me personally, there needs to be a reason for why you are actually killing the animal. Like it needs, like, and you need a valid reason. And if you don't want public outcry, don't name the stupid thing. Don't name the animal because don't forget Cecil, Cecil the lion had a brother who also got paid to get killed. They didn't name him, and the media didn't care. So, don't yeah, name it, the animals. It, 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 that that whole term trophy hunting it's it's a very gray area because there there's there's friends that I have that would consider my hunting to be trophy hunting. Um, the way Personal I go trophy, out, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, but even, well, even do you, still, do, you, do you hang I mean, like the antlers or feathers and you, yeah, you stuff yeah, them, I do. you stuff them taxidermy. Uh, one only cause I've only shot one big enough that I would consider, you know, paying $250 to, to hang on the wall that way. Yeah. It's it, the idea is, you know, like I have friends that they consider themselves meat hunters. Um, a meat hunter is someone that shoots whatever's legal for the meat, right? And that's that's great. That's one way you can go about hunting. That's awesome. Um, on our property, we're trying to manage the herd a little bit better. We're trying to allow the, especially whitetail bucks to get a little bit older. Yeah. Um, that way it's not, it's not nothing but young bucks that run around. And with that comes larger antlers. So some, some of my friends look at me and like, oh, you won't, that buck's legal, but you're not going to shoot it. You're trophy hunting. I'm just, I look at it as selective hunting, right? I'm selecting which, which animals I'm willing to shoot. And it's from a management aspect. Um, you know, it, it's, it's tough. There's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area in that, even within our own community of what's acceptable, what's not. Um, I, I look at it as hunt your hunt. If you, if you see an animal and you're like, I would be happy, that would, 
satisfy my goals for my hunt, by all means, go ahead and shoot that animal. Um, if it doesn't, because you think it's too young or it's too small, hey, that's fine too. I'm okay with that. Right? Yeah. It's it's your as long as it's within the the regulations and the rules and legality and it's ethically, you know, as far as like hunting ethics are concerned, as long as all it checks all those boxes, sounds good to me. You know, your decision is is good for me. That that second principle, to go back to that second principle though, that prohibition on comments of, of dead wildlife. The reason why that's in there is because of market hunting. Um, we can all think back to um, some of the crazy pictures from the late 1800s of like hundreds of bison dead across the landscape. Um, And that's what market hunting was. There was, there were people that that was their job. They would go out, they would kill hundreds of animals. They'd send hides back East or they would send um, oftentimes it turned into not meat, but mostly just the hides that they would send out East. Um, And you would sort of make money on that. Um, And that's not, you know, that's not allowed now. So, um, you know, I can't, if I shoot a, a whitetail, I can't sell the meat. I can't sell the antlers. I can't sell the hide. Um, and that's to try to keep people from taking more than they're supposed to because they're not making any money on it. It's a way of, it's a different way of conservation. That makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. So it's like, it's like a restriction. Yeah. Cause I mean, like we could, we could talk about hunters for like three hours, <laughs> maybe another day you can come on talking with We can talk about hunting, but no, I really, I really do think they're misunderstood groups for the most part. There are definitely some assholes out there and that's up for debate or they're just straight up assholes, but that's any community. Um, but you know, hunting is very interesting because it is, it kind of, you have to think about it. It's like, Oh, this is actual conservation. Um, but let's pivot to the actual podcast. And the podcast is called Conservation Unfiltered. And I love the word unfiltered. So why start the podcast and how'd you come up with that name? Ooh, um, I, I didn't want to start the podcast. <laughs> why? Oh. You, man, you're, you're very natural on a podcast. And I'm not just saying because I'm a good host either. I think you're very natural on a podcast. Yeah, I, you know what? I um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, I've been listening to podcasts for for years. And um, when I first thought like, ah, maybe I should start one, I reached out to a couple hosts um, that I had listened to, and they sort of told me like the workload, right? Like it's not just hey, it is forty minutes of work, right? Yeah, it, it is it's a lot. more. And I thought, man, do I really want to spend the time doing it? I was like, you know what? I'll give it a shot. I'll give it ten episodes. Um, if I'm enjoying it, I'll keep going. Uh, I think this week as we're recording this, I'll be releasing my 104th episode, I think it is. So, and then it's a bunch of bonus episodes. I really enjoy it. Um, why did I do it? I wanted to just increase, you know, sort of the, the profile of conserve the wild, get out in front of more people and talk to, um, people in the industry, right. People that are conservationists, um, other hunters, uh, researchers, things like that. Um, I decided very early on, I didn't want to take uh, an approach that was like sort of pussyfooting around. Like I want to dive right in and talk about things that people within the hunting and, and conservation and fishing world are a little uncomfortable with. Right. So for years, climate change has been, you know, one of those sort of hands off sort of topics that you don't talk about because a lot of hunters and a lot of fishermen are conservatives and uh, we don't want to upset the conservatives because, you know, by talking about climate change uh, that has switched, right? Um, We now realize, I I think a lot of hunters and fishermen are realizing that climate change is something that is affecting wildlife populations, right? So it's affecting the activity that you want to do. We're we're overfishing the oceans for sure. Yeah, Like as as species, a lot of different countries just have no, regulation on fishing at all at least in this mm-hmm. country you know we do have some regulation don't get me wrong climate change is a real issue 
But the rest of the world, we're comes to conservation, animal life and wildlife, we're pretty far ahead. Yeah, and, and it's great. But, you know, even, you know, like even our, our streams are getting too warm for trout. Colorado's running out of water. Like the Colorado yeah. Dam, like this, the whole Southwest, they're running out of water. I'm going to say yeah. that again. They're running out of water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a major issue, right? And we can't, I don't care how conservative you are. If you're a hunter, you're seeing, you know, or a fisherman, like you're seeing the the impacts on the landscape. So let's talk yeah. about it. Let's let's be unfiltered in the approach. I'm not filtering what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, hunting numbers, you know, numbers of hunters in the United States, uh, the numbers themselves, like actual hunters, it's declined um, somewhat, but the real decline is the percentage of the population that hunts. Uh, you know, we keep getting more and more people in our country and we're getting, you know, and less and less people are replacing the baby boomers who were really the main driver in hunting. So, um, you know, how can we get more people in there? There's a whole slew of demographics that are, I don't know if it's knowingly or unknowingly excluded from, you know, this activity, you know, the LGBTQ uh, community, um, you know, minorities, Hispanics, especially, right. Um, there's a lot of people that, that frankly are racist and, and homophobic and don't want those people. I don't want those people around me doing what I want to do. Um, I'm here to say not only should we welcome them because they're people just like you and me, but we should actually, um, you know, invite them with us because here's something, no matter what you agree or disagree with them with, here's something you can agree with them on. You both like doing the same activity. So you're going to have fun. You're, you're going to make a new friend out of it. Yeah, it's surprising how, you know, once you actually get to know people and expose yourself to people, they're, you just feel like, wow, this, they're just like me. We both hate we both hate the Red Sox just like everyone else, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, is, it is that simple. You know, like, I, got even th- I didn't even think of that. Like, you know, you think of like a, a hunter. You think of as the... Go MAGA, Republican, crazy. You no, know, not crazy person. You know that that kind of person, Republican. It's like no, there's probably a lot of liberals too that also like hunting. That are like, you know, save the trees to hippie people, right? It's like they're they the two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I, listen. If you want to save a tree, shoot a deer because deer are the reason why oh, trees in, in Pennsylvania are not growing like they used to because they eat the trees when they're young and they don't, they don't get as tall and as old as they're supposed to. So, um, yeah, there's, there are, we are getting to the point now where we're getting more women, uh, more minorities, um, you know, people, we're getting people into the hunting space. Um, and we're even more than that. The reason why they're coming to the hunting space is because they're interested in conservation. Yeah. They like going for hikes. They like, you know, doing raft trips, um, things like that. And then as they expose themselves more to the outdoors, then the next logical step for them is, well, I want to try hunting. Well, how do you start? Hunting is tough, right? Um, there's, it's very expensive. It's dangerous, right? So if you've never done it before, you don't know anyone else who does it, how are you going to do it? Yeah. Um, the way to get more people involved is to invite them. Um, one of the largest demographics of new hunters is actually vegans and vegetarians. Um, and I actually align you know, a lot of my thinking as far as food is concerned. I align myself a lot with vegans. Um, and vegetarians, they don't want to eat. A lot of times, they don't want to eat, you know, meat because they don't agree with industrial farming practices. Yeah, fact, hey, fact, I, fact, I'm right, factory farming yeah. is disgusting. It's yeah, gross. I'm right there with you. Yeah. I don't. So you know, their way of reducing the impacts of factory farming is by not eating meat. My way is by still eating meat, but not getting it from that factory farm. Right, right? harvesting it, it on my own. Right. Yep. So um, 
talk to me about the relationship between your business, even though it is not for profit, it's still technically a business, and and the podcast, like that relationship, how one helps the other. Yeah, so uh, with Conserve the Wild, uh, it helps the podcast because um, we have a, a main mission, right? Like we have a goal. So let's talk about what that mission is. Let's talk about the things that impact that mission on the podcast. Um, the podcast helps the business because it drives, or helps the nonprofit because it drives interest, right? right? It drives people to check us out um, and see what we're about and hopefully try to, you know, also get them involved somehow, either financially or through some, some volunteer opportunities um, that had to get put on hold for the last year and a half. But um, hopefully we'll be getting those back up online here in short order. All right. So um, what do you think, what do you think your listeners, how do they bet? Okay, what, okay. Who do you think would like your show and who would benefit from your content? I got that questions were written really poorly. So like, who, what, what are your listeners? Who are, who are your listeners? And what's the biggest benefit they get from listening to your show? Uh, most of my listeners are uh, 20 to 30 year old men that enjoy the outdoors. And <laughs> um, what do they get from it? I, I hope they get a little bit of entertainment. Um, but more than that, I hope, they're, I hope they're learning something, right? About whatever that topic is that week. Uh, it's a very, it's always conservation specific somehow, um, but it changes week to week. And, you know, this week we'll be talking about invasive carp. Um, last week we talked about um, sort of like alternative jobs working in and around national parks, not the park rangers, but all the people that support that. Right. Right. Um, so that maybe, you know, a retiree there, I do have some older listeners, maybe a retiree decides, you know what, I'm going to go work part time in a national park. Um, or, you know, we have fishermen in Ohio that haven't had to deal with invasive carp, but they realized that they're, they're making their way through the water systems towards Indiana and Ohio and places like that. So, hey, what can I do to get involved to try to help stop that spread of these invasive carp? Yeah. So do you have any podcast inspirations? You know, because I this this is the first this is the first like conservation for a nonprofit podcast I've run across. Right. So it's it's a very it's a very niche market. As you said, you know, hunters are going down, but that's a good thing for podcasting. That's a good thing. Niche is good. You can make money off niche. But like how how crowded is the market? Um for these podcasts and is anyone out there else you want to shout out and who inspired you and you know, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, there's not many, if you want to find it strictly conservation, there's not many podcasts out there conservation based. Um, That's good. The, the oh, trying to think uh, Backcountry hunter and angler uh, hunters and anglers. That's a, a conservation group. They have a podcast um, Backcountry uh, blast and cast. I think they call it um, with Hal Herring. Uh, I love him. He has the perfect radio voice and I love listening to his show. Um, most of my inspiration comes from sort of, um, I guess, hunting related shows. There, there are a ton of hunting related sh- uh, podcasts out there. Um, and, you know, I would love to be, you know, up to Steve Ranella at Meat Eater, or Remy Warren yeah. doing work for Meat Eater, like those kind of guys. But um, yeah, no, Hal Herring is, is definitely the guy. Yeah. Podcast and, podcast and Blast uh, from BHA. That is definitely the, the sort of inspiration and in, in where I hope to get to someday in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Ranella really is. Like, if you think of like, you know, he's a Rogan guest, right? That's a lot of people yeah. know him. He's a Rogan guest. That's mm-hmm. how I've heard of him. You know, I've mm-hmm. listened to all of his episodes and I'm like, that's how that's how I learned so much about hunting. Just listening to listening to Steve Ranella's like podcast and Rogan. He's a fascinating guy. Fascinating guy. It's just like I would love to talk to him. And I know 
way less. I know way, way, way less than you do. I bet you would love to talk to him. But I would, oh, yeah. like, if I talked to him, I'd listen to you talk to him first. I know what to ask and what not to ask. <laughs> but, like, um, so do you, like, do you have any previous experience in broadcasting? Like, was it, was it, was it easier to learn to hunt or easier to learn to podcast? <laughs> oh man. Um, equal, both of them equally hard. Uh, previous mm. experience. No, uh, I guess my only previous experience is that I'm a teacher. So I talk all day. So at least I'm used to conversing with people. Yeah. That uh, definitely you know, helps. That definitely you know, helps. The, the number one fear of people is speaking in front of a group of people. You know, number two is death. People would rather would rather die than speak in, in front of people. Um, so I go against the grain in that aspect. Um, so uh, I think that helped, right. That helped me become com- a little more comfortable with it a little bit quicker. Um, it was definitely for me easier to learn to hunt, but only because I couldn't start hunting until I was 12 and I was outside with my dad and my grandfather while they were hunting or while they were getting ready to hunt or after hunts. Like I was always outside with them from the time I was, you know, from the time I could walk. So I had years of experience outside before I even got to go hunt. Um, so the actual act of hunting m- might've been a little bit easier for me in that regard. Mm. So how is, how is your podcast structured? And by structure, I mean like, you know, does it need to be, does it need to be within a certain time limit? Do you release on a certain day? Do you always have guests? Do you have guests and monologues? Like how do you structure your show? I would say we're probably 95% guests and in interview. Um, I, I, make sure to tell everyone that I'm not the expert. I'm bringing the experts on, Mm. um, that that's how I want to bring them information. Uh, I, you know, some of the things that I feel like I have a lot of information about Allegheny national forest, um, North American model conservation. I've done solo shows on that because I feel like I know that information well enough. Uh, but it's vast. The vast majority of them are guests and talking to other people. Uh, I, I like talking to other people. So that, makes it more enjoyable for me. Um, I try to keep the episodes around 45 minutes just because, uh, you know, we're talking, like I said, we're talking about niche subjects. So um, there's really only so long you can go into it until people start getting really bored, especially when you're talking to, you know, an academic researcher (laughs) or something like that. Um, And yeah, I I release all the episodes uh, every Tuesday. Uh, If there's no technical glitches, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, sometimes can be pushed back as late as 10 a.m. if there's some technical issues that I've had from time to time. So how do, how do you find your guests? Cool. Uh, originally it was a lot of cold calling. Um, I would find someone mm-hmm. that had a, had a cool, um, job, uh, or a, someone that wrote a, a cool article or something like that. And I would just shoot an email and uh, a lot of those people came on. I still do that from time to time. If I find, so, if I find something that is, uh, you know, really piques my interest in something that I read their article and then I read a couple more articles about it from someone else. I'm like, I'm going to go back to the original person nice. um, and have them on. Uh, but it, now it's to the point where it's sort of like a tree, right? Like you get one guest and then they tell you about one or two other people and then you talk to them and have them on and then they tell you about one or two other people and it sort of grows in that sort of branch. Um, and that's that's really how most of the guests seem to be uh, coming on, uh, especially in the last six months or so. So how much of a networking tool is the podcast? Like, do you use the podcast to network with your guests? And like, do you, do you bring, obviously the first thing you want to do when you have a guest on is you want to have a great conversation, right? You want to get to know them. You want to know who they are, what they do, et cetera. But also podcasting is a great networking tool, especially for a business and especially, especially for a nonprofit. So how successful are you? Like, do you, do you convert your guests into people who work with you? 
Yeah, I would say since we're so new, I would say it's not as high of a conversion rate as it could be. Um, people, you know, anytime you're something new, people are a little standoffish about that. Um, yeah. We don't have a national reach either, so that makes it tough. Yeah. Um, I've had some, you know, guests on where people that really like them and listen to the episode, you know, they're interested, but you know, it's hard for them to come to a volunteering event in central PA whenever they live in, you know, California. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, the networking is, it, it's gotten better over the years. Um, you know, as we've sort of grown a little bit, it keeps getting, you know, the ball, the, the ball rolling down the hill keeps getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to do as much organic growth as possible, um, you know, and try to keep away from, um, get away from too much on the way of, of paid marketing. Um, when it comes to an issue like conservation, you know, you can't pay someone to care about conservation. They have to have that sort of internally. So, um, you know, we're trying to get out in front of as many people as we can to spread our message, cast that net as wide as we can. Unfortunately, um, as big as the net is, the holes in the net are also pretty big because a lot of people just like, yeah, they might be interested, but are they really, you know, passionate about it enough to where they want to actually, you know, take that next step and, and help out? Yeah, it's tough. It's, it's, it's definitely tough. I mean, nowadays it's hard to network with anybody, like let alone just regardless. But, you know, if you have a guest that a low con, a low uh, conversion rate, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Cause you know, you still have, you still have good content. You know, if you have a podcast, the most important thing is good content. Like I tell people like after you finish recording a podcast, you know, like, you know, here's what we can do, et cetera, et cetera. We're doing some work with me. And sometimes I don't, sometimes a guest is, it's like, eh, I don't want to work with you or I can't work with you, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, you still have great content. And that's the fun of podcasting. So, yeah. oh, go ahead. you know, if I, if I have a conversion of, you know, one person every five episodes, that's still one more person. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, and that's just sort of the, the eternal optimist and, and positive person that I am. Like even a guest, even a guest that's like, you know, here's five bucks donation. That's a win. Mm-hmm. That, that's a win. That's when like every podcast I do is a win. Even doesn't convert, uh, convert because it's just more content for you to put out there. It's more video for me to edit. It's more skills for me to up- update. You know, it's another person I'm talking to. You know, like I tell people all the time, my podcast is a business, but I also podcast for personal growth. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like a reason why I would want to go hunting for personal growth to kind of click into that kind of thing. So like, you know, I can t- if I can talk to a hunter, right? And like, you know, try and like, I mean, okay, I can now go to another hunter if I ever meet one and try and convince him to get a podcast. Like it's, it's, it's easier. It's just, it's just reps. And that's something that's great about even with guests, like because event- eventually I want all these to be in person, like like yep. Rogan does. All these, it's gonna be much better in person. I like that we do this over Zoom. I like that I can put everything in my fancy schmancy graphics package, and I love. But it's gonna be better in person. So I'm gonna ask you, Jason, are your guests mostly in person, remote, or a fair mix? Uh, remote. Uh, I mean, that's I'm I'm pulling people from all over the country. Yeah. Um, I'm pulling people from. Uh, I've had a couple international people as well. Um, you know, so it's yeah. It, remote is really the only viable option that I have. Um, you know, it doesn't help that I don't have like a traditional studio either. Right. Uh, which, you know, if I could, if we could make a lot of money off of this, like Joe Rogan and get us get, you know, get a deal with Spotify, then, you know, we're going to start flying people in. But, um, yeah, for, for now it's, it's remote, but, um, anytime I get the chance to, to do an in-person, I'm actually yeah, this week I'm actually doing an in-person interview. Um, I have some guests that are actually um, going to be a little bit closer to to where I live, so I'm going to basically basically we're meeting halfway, um, and they just happen to be there. So I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll do that drive to do it in person because it 
the quality is so much better when it's in when it's in person. Definitely. Like I I do I do enjoy these remote interviews. It's it's different. It's a challenge. Um, I don't interrupt as much <laughs> if we were in person. But you know, like that's just a fun, flowing conversation. Like a podcast really is just a conversation, and the listeners are fly on the wall, shelling at the radio if they disagree. That's just yeah, how it works. I'm- that that's what I love about podcasts is you can make it whatever you want, right? Like yeah. you ask me how long my episodes are. I decided 45 minutes seems to work. You know, you can make it five minutes. You can make it two, you know, Steve Ranella, Joe Rogan, they're doing hours at a time. You know, that's great. Uh, you know, that's what I love about it. You can make it each episode, whatever it is that you want. So do you do video content? No, we do not do video content. I am, uh, <laughs> I'm not good in front of or behind the camera. So, um, yeah, I have a I have a face for radio, so this microphone is uh, is the best way for me. Yeah, I got a face for radio and a voice for TV. That's just how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, who else is part of your podcast team? Are you a one man crew? Do you do all the recording and editing and distribution yourself, or do you have people to help you out? Yeah, I do. I would say ninety percent of it myself. Um, I do have a, a, a coworker here that that helps me out from time to time, um, recording some segments if we have some segment stuff, but, um, the vast majority of it's done by me, um, which I'm, if I could farm out to someone else, I would, I would do that in a heartbeat. Um, I love the conversations. I love the pre-interview stuff. Um, the, the editing and, and the promoting afterwards is not my cup of tea. I do it, uh, because you have to, right. Um, and, uh, you know, someday I hope to get to the point where I can have someone else helping, you know, hundred percent with all that sort of post-production stuff. Is that the biggest challenge you face today? The post-production stuff, like after it's done and it's getting it out there? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's, um, and, most and, people have that same problem. Yeah, and that's just because it's not my jam. Like, it's not what I want to do, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if I enjoyed doing the post-production stuff, it'd probably be the easiest thing for me to do. Um, but that's that's not me. I'd rather sit here and talk to you and, you know, email back and forth, you know, ahead of time and do all the the pre-production stuff and everything. Like, that's that's the kind of stuff that that... I find interesting because I'm getting to know someone. I'm having a conversation with someone sitting down and listening to it and editing it up afterwards. And then promoting it is just it. There's, there's other people that are, are more passionate about doing that than I am. Yeah. Well, I like, I like the post-production. I like I like the editing. It's, it's, it can be very tedious. So for example, I'm going to listen to this interview three times. One right now we're recording it. Uh, the second time is when I throw into the graphics package and put everything in the, the switches and the cuts and everything. And then the third time I go back, listen for social clips. And my average right now is seven clips per podcast in over an hour. And then, you know, those are all going to be released. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna listen to this, listen and watch those clips a million different times before they're released. So, you know, I listen to it again, find a description, but like it's, it's tedious and it's annoying, but I like it. It's fun. And it's just like, I, I force myself to pay attention and that's how I get my creative juices flowing. It's like, Oh, I can bump up this video. How can I do it? How can I like add graphics to it? Okay, let me learn how to make this graphics package. Let me go, let's watch a few After Effects tutorials so I can figure out how to make this better. It's like that That from the creative process is just much better for me. But I totally get it when you're just like, I just want to do it and be done with it. So that's that's definitely a challenge. And it's, you know, for me personally, I hate the social media. So that's a challenge for me. Um, but other than, other than that, what, do you still have any other challenge? What's the hardest part of doing the podcast? Scheduling. I mean, Mm. without a doubt, scheduling, right? I mean, you're trying to get, you know, at minimum two people's, 
you know, it, with my format, right, this format, talking to someone else, you're trying to get two people's schedules to match up. That's tough to do. Um, and that's if you're only having one guest on. There's, you know, the, this week, you know, there's going to be three guests on my podcast at the same time. So trying to match up that schedule uh, sometimes is super, super tough, which um, is not fun. Um, sometimes it works out super easy, right? Like, hey, I'm available on these days at these times. They're like, oh, cool. I'll just, you know, this, this one works for me. Great. Awesome. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, 20 emails later and you've finally scheduled something out, you know, two months later that you're finally going to have that conversation. And that conversation oftentimes is a little bit lacking because the, that creative juices you're talking about that I'm thinking about in the pre-interview stuff sort of wanes because I sort of forgot about it. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that we over here at APS managed to have a process where we cut the email back and forth down to nil, like as little as possible. Just, hey, reach out to me, intro email. Just, you know, here's a form, fill it out. You go right back to my calendar. It's just easy, 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 easy. I mean, if you need something like that, I can, we'll talk afterwards. But, you know, it's super, super easy. It's super helpful. And it's like, you know, shout out to Jared Laverne for making that possible. Um, so what's, my last question before we wrap it up, what's next for you? What's next for the podcast? What's next for the business? What's the goal? Ooh, um, next for the podcast is, um, bigger name guests. Um, mm, I, I celebrated, that's a great yeah, goal. yeah, I celebrated, uh, the 100th episode with what I would consider the, uh, to be my biggest get, which was the, the head of the Pennsylvania game commission. Um, if you're a hunter in Pennsylvania, you know, his name, you probably don't like him. Um, so for him to come on my podcast, I thought that was, that was huge. Um, I want to, I want to keep going with that, right? Like I want to start getting, um, more political figures. I want to start getting, um, you know, people that are, are a little bit bigger named on the show. And then for the business, um, it's uh, quite honestly, it's, it's trying to get some more corporate, uh, the next step for us is getting more corporate sponsorships, more corporate partnerships. Um, we have a few, uh, that donate, you know, enough basically to, to keep us running, uh, with, you know, keep the website running, keep the, uh, the, the podcast hosting fees going, that kind of stuff. Um, I would like to get more or bigger, uh, so that we can actually start turning some of that money into more conservation work, as opposed to, you know, just keep the lights on type stuff. All right. Well, Jason, I wish you nothing but the best. I'm sure, I'm sure if you keep doing what you're doing and how you're doing it, I sh I'm sure you'll be just fine. But before we go, last thing, uh, you need to do some plugs, my friend. Let let everyone know where they can find you, your website, how they can support uh, the non-for-profit, your podcast, anything you want to plug and put out there to the world, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, you can uh, you can find us at conservethewild.org. That's our website. Uh, we have uh, a sometimes blog posted on there. We have an all-the-time podcast on there, and that's how you can sort of learn the ins and outs uh, and sort of our mission and what we're doing. Um, you can follow us on social media. Uh, we're on Instagram, conserve underscore the underscore wild. Had to be convoluted with that. Uh, Twitter is uh, at Conserve Wild. And then um, we have two, we have a Facebook page, uh, Conserve the Wild. And then we have a Facebook group for the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. Uh, you can search those and, and just find us there. And then, you know, obviously, you know, subscribe and, and give us a shot. Give me a shot. You know, listen to uh, the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. And uh, I think you'll be surprised some of the different uh, information you can learn that, that, you might not think would interest you, but turns out is pretty interesting. 
All right, Jason, thank you so much again. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, it's now my turn to plug all my stuff, all my shenanigans. You've heard this rant before, one more time, not gonna hurt. My name is Will Tarish. I got Tease and Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. You can find me and all of my other interviews for the Ambiguous Podcast Solution over at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com where all of my other guests for season one and the ongoing season two are there. If you wanna be a guest on this podcast, one, you have to have a podcast. That's a spoiler. Um, and reach out to me at will at APSpodcast.com. It's APSPODCAST.com. But don't worry, my friends, if you don't have a podcast and still want to be interviewed by me to talk about yourself, your business, whatever it is you do, and if I find you generally interesting, you're allowed on that podcast on Talking with Tara Shuck. That's my other podcast that can also be found at Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. Dot com. All the content from our podcast partners can be found over at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com as well as all our other services, including, you know, production, distribution, marketing, CRM management, um, email text message campaign, the whole shebang, they're all there. All of our partnerships, all the info is at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Again, I am Will Tarashuk. That is Jason Crichton. We will be back next week. Well, I will be back next week. Jason has another podcast. Go check that out. I'll be back next time with a brand new podcast, a brand new guest, and who knows what we're going to talk about. I don't know, but that's half the fun. We'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Ambiguous Podcast Solution. If you want your podcast featured on the show, reach out to us at info at APSpodcast.com. You can find more content from all of our APS partners over at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. If you liked this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. Want to find out more about our guests? Check out the description or anywhere across our social media channels for all of their links and information. Check out our YouTube channel for this and all featured podcast clips and more. This podcast was hosted, produced, and distributed by Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. We'll see you next time.